This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Tracy Todd, who is president and CEO of Middleton Place Foundation, and Virginia Christian Beach, who has just written a wonderful new book entitled American Landmark, Charles Duell and the Rebirth of Middleton Place. In the interest of transparency and full disclosure, Middleton Place Foundation is a supporter of South Carolina Public Radio. Todd, Virginia, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. It's great to be here. This is a story of a man. It's also a story of a place over many generations. And, Virginia, we might want to start out, before we get into American Landmark, a little bit about you for our listeners. Yes, Walter. I I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and in a family uh, immersed in and with a great love of history. And went to the University of Virginia, got B.A. in English there, and then went right into the United States Peace Corps for a couple of years. Yeah. And then ended up working for Little Brown Publishers in New York City before meeting my husband, Dana Beach. And uh, he's the one that brought me to South Carolina, and I've never looked back. And Tracy, your story? Well, I was born and raised in Horry County. Uh, in Conway, South Carolina. Now, that, an, an actual native of Horry County, that is a very rare specimen these days. Absolutely. It cer- certainly has changed since, since, uh, since I was there, um, but was raised on a farm there and just sort of had an innate sort of sense of, of uh, appreciation for history. And, and when I came down to the College of Charleston in the 80s, um, had an opportunity to go to work for Middleton Place Foundation. And uh, it really changed my life. Two things, that because I do know a little bit more about your past. You studied with my dear friend, Dr. Bernard Powers at the College of Charleston, which got you a good grounding in African-American, Southern, and South Carolina history. Uh, And that first job with the Middleton Place Foundation was actually, were you a tour guide at the Edmondson Olson House? That's right. Uh, As a, a college student at the College of Charleston, history major, Dr. Powers was uh, back then a, a new professor who just came in and, and uh, teaching American South, and I was one of many of the students back then that kind of gravitated to him. Uh, we enjoyed his personality, his way of teaching, and, of course, his subject matter, and he's been a mentor of mine since then. Funny story about Dr. Powers, uh, he invited me to, to come and, and do a talk uh, recently for, for one of his audiences. And, uh, and he said, Tracy, you know, um, you, when are you going to stop calling me Dr. Powers and call me Bernie? <laughs> and, and I said, well, Dr. Powers, I'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> but you were a tour guide. You were basically a docent at the Edmiston Olson House? Well, that's right. Um, in 1990, uh, the, the Edmiston Olson House had been opened as a house museum for 15 years. Uh, Charles Duell had opened it to the public under, under the management of Historic Charleston Foundation. Middleton Place Foundation took it over, took the management of it over in 1990. And as you can imagine, the, the volunteer corps that was giving tours, you know, some of them had allegiances to Historic Charleston Foundation. So some left. It was sort of a turning point. And they were hiring people to give tours. And, and I saw a, a, an advertisement at the College of Charleston on a billboard back then. You pull a little piece of paper off the, the tab and go answer the call, <laughs> you know, and, and that's how I got my start okay. back in 1990. So that got your start, and obviously the association continued. You did do some graduate work at, at the Citadel of the College of Charleston. Right. After I finished my undergraduate degree, uh, went on to a joint program uh, that was offered through the Citadel and College of Charleston that allowed me to work during the day and go to classes at night. And I worked during the day at the Edmiston Austin House. Uh, that was my first full-time job. It was, it was kind of quote-unquote house manager, but that really meant you were the person who polished the silver and, and took care of the house itself. And so I was polishing silver during the day and, and getting my graduate degree at night. Yeah. That sounds like 
an old-fashioned applied history job that people working for a relatively small museum, you did a little bit of of everything. Talk about living history. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Virginia, how did you get involved in in writing this book? Well, I had the good fortune of being invited to tell this marvelous story and began three years ago interviewing Charles Duell, the last family member to own Middleton Place and, of course, the, the founder of the foundation. And I must say, Walter, the interviews you conducted uh, with Charles about 15 years ago were also a very important source for us. I want to say also I have to give credit to my – I was an English major at University of Virginia – but my mother was on the board of the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities, which is now called Preservation Virginia. Hmm. And I spent many an afternoon after school at the John Marshall House in downtown Richmond, where she was chair of the furnishings committee. <laughs> and then she was chairman of Jamestown, Virginia, and I'd go down there often with her. And, um, and that is where I uh, developed – a real love for history, but I come at it from a writer's and a generalist's perspective. And, and, I, and you also had a publishing background in New York. Yes, absolutely. And Little Brown at that time owned Atlantic Monthly Books, and and uh, there was some superb nonfiction and fiction titles there. But at any rate, I this is um, really um, – such a privilege and has been one of the most fulfilling projects I've undertaken is the story of Middleton Place. In many ways, this is a writer's dream because all of the archives were open to you. All of the family members living here and abroad were available for interview. So it's not just a writer's dream, it's a historian's dream. You've got access to all of these sources to tell the story. Absolutely, Walter. And uh, I think as we, this is the, the most complete story told to date of Middleton Place, and so many voices are represented here, uh, whether it's the voices of the Middleton family, the voices of the descendants of the enslaved. Many, many are here, and, and also this book rests on the shoulders of the superb researchers and archivists uh, who came to work at Middleton Place beginning really in the 1970s when Charles undertook the the rebirth. Uh, people like Barbara Doyle. Yes, indeed. Um, before her, Chivas Leland, mm-hmm. Sarah Little, certainly Barbara Doyle, Mary Edna Sullivan, Tracy Todd. I shouldn't begin naming because I'll leave someone out. Dottie Stone, Jeff Neal, who currently heads up interpretation. I would want to take just one minute and give the genealogy of Middleton Place, how an individual named Charles Duell ended up being the last owner of Middleton Place. And it begins back in the 18th century with Mary Williams, who was the daughter of John Williams and Mary Baker. 500 acres on the Ashley River was her dowry when she married Henry Middleton. And then additional land was purchased by Henry. That then passed to his son, Arthur, to his son, Henry, to his son, Williams, with an S, Williams Middleton, then to his widow, Susan Pringle Smith Middleton, then to their daughter, Elizabeth Middleton Hayward, who willed it to her cousin, John Julius Pringle Smith who passed it to his grandson, Charles Duell. Now, that, all of those names and the initials are a good Charleston genealogy, but that's how the generations went from 1721 to the present day. Indeed, it's very direct. Charles often says and credits, as he says, the distaff side of the family. And as we know, I think the distaff is the Bindle on a on a spinning wheel, associated with the women often, uh, the passing down of Middleton Place, although we certainly know that the gentlemen enhanced and 
enlarged Middleton <laughs> extensively over the years as well. Well, let's build the house and how and tear it down. <laughs> as Tracy, you want to go do that? Well, where do you want to start? Well, does, it, does it go all the way to Barbados in England? or No, we don't need to go back quite that far. <laughs> uh, although the, the house certainly looks like a house in Barbados. Well, if you literally want to talk about the Middleton Place house that's now in ruin, uh, it was built about 1705. And as uh, Virginia said, the property actually passed through a couple of different marriages before landing with Mary Williams and then with Henry Middleton. So it's really been in the family uh, even longer than, than we just said. But it was built about 1705 by a man named Richard Godfrey. And if it was still standing, it would be one of the oldest in South Carolina. It's a real shame that uh, kind of tragically it was burned during the Civil War. So it's no longer there. But it was an older style of old English type of house with a Jacobean staircase sort of a, a generation before the grand Georgian architecture of Drayton Hall. And over the years, uh, flankers were added, one of which is still there today. You've got some beautiful illustrations, watercolors that were done prior to 1860 that shows the general layout. It was, you know, stables, the farmyard, what, what have you. Uh, and then in 1865, the house was burned, uh, but the flanker was saved. Right, and... and uh, the, the flankers were, were added really by, by Henry and, and Mary Williams as they're developing the site and their families growing. And, and this house uh, was, was relatively small c- considering. Um, so they did need more space and added those flankers. And it was part of the overall landscape of the gardens. They really fit in with the landscape. And it's amazing the engineering and the, the, the site work that was done, um, creating that built and landscaped environment that, that they did. And it's also amazing to think about that landscape being created by um, hand work by, with enslaved Africans who are digging, um, using buckets and shovels, and, and, and not much more to create those wonderful butterfly lakes and, and terraces that are part of the gardens at Middleton Place, which are America's oldest landscape gardens. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Virginia Beach and Tracy Todd about Middleton Place and about Virginia's book, American Landmark, Charles Duell and the Rebirth of Middleton Place. Let's talk about the design. Formal gardens came to South Carolina very early, you know, in in the uh, 1740s. People are describing various gardens. Let's talk about the evolution of the garden at Middleton Place. Well, Henry had an older brother named William uh, that started the adventure of his life a a, a few years earlier and developed a property uh, called Crowfield. And Crowfield had an amazing uh, formal garden with many of the same elements, but it was – it didn't have the benefit of the, of the lay of the land uh, that Middleton Place has, the elevation on the Ashley River. Uh, Crowfield is over in Goose Creek. We've oftentimes speculated among the staff that maybe Henry was trying to one-up his older brother uh, with the younger, gardens at Middleton Place. Younger brothers tend to do that, <laughs> as my older brother would Uh And Middleton is on one of the highest bluffs in the low country, isn't it? Uh, It's pretty spectacular. It's a very spectacular site. I mean, that's what people don't realize because you think of uh, the low country rivers that everything is very, very flat. Just out of curiosity, what's the elevation from the river to the to the to, to where the house is located? I I believe it's about thirty five feet. So that you know, that's a very nice elevation. and it's a very formal garden laid out on an axis. I know I, ha- I have walked the garden with Charles as he pointed out. Uh, you don't realize it un- unless it's pointed out because it appears, I don't want to say natural, but it, it's an incredible uh, design. It does appear natural because it really takes in the river. It takes in a, a, a long stretch of river. So there's a bend uh, where you, you turn this bend in the river and you're on the axis as you're approaching Middleton Place from uh, from the river, um, it, and it must have been an amazing sight uh, to see when when the house and those two flankers were were there. It just must have been an amazing sight to see it from the river. But it's it's an English garden. It was created, of course, with 
the principles and the sort of the godfather, you might say, of, of, of this type of garden, Andre Lenote, who was the, the famous French um, landscape architect, but his his principles were were um, used in England and, and in America, and and we always talk about uh, that Middleton Place is a is really an English country estate in America, and we have to educate um, our visitors on that because they're coming to Middleton Place expecting to find a Greek Revival house with columns and and where's the Avenue of Oaks, uh, but it's so fun to talk about. The, the, the fact that South Carolina's history is so rich and it goes back 100 years beyond when, when, when that type of site was being developed. Okay. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you could have stood on the front stoop of the original house and there's an axis that runs through the garden all the way down into the dike between the two butterfly lakes, right? That's correct. And then the river stretches out and it, it's like an extension of that axis. And I think... What also is unique about this garden is the the English um, model brought to the Low Country and the way in which the Middletons and others adapted these uh, models to a very exotic environment, and particularly one in which water dominated, uh, and that was always a challenge in controlling the water. All around us, in addition to the unique, you know, flora and fauna. Eventually, Englishmen always picked up plants from hither and thither and yon, uh, azaleas and camellias, which people, particularly japonicas, which people think are native, they are not, although they've been around for more than 250 years. And it was actually a French gardener who introduced them to Middleton Place. Right. It was a, a French naturalist, uh, André Michaud, uh, who was on commission from the King of France, uh, Louis XVI, to find useful trees that could be taken back and, and planted to kind of reforest French, the, the French countryside. And he brought camellias to the Low Country, to Middleton Place, and he presented four to the Middletons. And the theory is, is probably as a presentation gift to be able to maybe forage for trees on the seven, almost 7,000 acres of land that, that was Middleton Place at that time. Uh, one of those camellias is, is still alive, uh, called the Rene de Fleur, and it's, it's blooming today. All right, you had 7,000 acres. How many of those acres or how few were actually farmed or planted? There, were, there was some rice, but that was not really a major rice-growing plantation. That's a good point. There was rice grown in the inland swamps uh, across historic Ashley River Road. I don't know the acreage of, of those inland swamp fields, but quite a bit was grown over there. But Middleton Place was really their family headquarters, you might say. It was not the plantation that produced the amazing wealth that this family possessed that allowed them to um, Go and and do think pursuits like uh, serving in the Continental Congress and signing the Declaration of Independence and the, the public service that they they had the trips the traveling they did the life they led was all supported by rice plantations that were on the Cumbie River that were traditional rice plantations where tons and tons of, of rice were produced. Well, produced. you mentioned the inland swamps because that was the earliest way that rice was produced in South Carolina. Later, the tidal cultivation on the Cumbie, the Black, the PD, certainly the Waccamaw River developed in the late colonial period and then, of course, flourished in the, the period between 1775 and 1865. Virginia, we were talking historic Middleton Place with, with Tracy. Let's talk about Charles Dill and the rebirth. Maybe go back to John Julius Pringle Smith because that's when things began to change around at the turn of the century, and particularly his wife. Certainly, yes. Henningham Lyons Ellett Smith, uh, Pringle's wife, um, who hailed from my hometown. So I immediately felt a connection to Charles's grandmother, Henningham, whom he credits with the restoration of the gardens at Middleton Place when— Pringle learned of his inheritance, she was thrilled and embraced the challenges and really saw it as her calling and her legacy 
Uh, the couple really didn't have a lot of resources, financial resources, uh, yet they put their youthful energy and enthusiasm into this legacy, and they felt the weight of history on their shoulders, no question. And literally, even though they did have employees, mm -hmm. uh, particularly she didn't shy away from doing garden labor herself. Absolutely. And Charles's earliest memories of Middleton Place are walking with his grandmother in the gardens, and she always carried clippers, always was pruning and tending to the garden. And, of course, eventually they began accepting visitors and she would treat them as visitors, not tourists, you know, but true guests at Middleton Place and would uh, write them notes if they commented in the guest book and so forth. It was a, a, a huge undertaking. And by the 1940s, they were uh, receiving about 15,000 visitors every winter and spring at Middleton Place. Yes, the the, the Charleston spring season, the you know, uh, <laughs> Down, down the river, Magnolia Gardens had, had opened as a public garden in the 1870s. Absolutely, very early on. And for a long time, uh, the Northerners that were curious to, to tour the ravaged South would get on a, you know, a, I'm guessing a steamboat up the Ashley River yeah, yeah. Yeah, to tour Magnolia. The Draytons had opened it to the public, as you say, very early. And then they would proceed up to Middleton and just view this ruin through the, the woods. It wasn't until, yes, decades later, beginning really with uh, Pringle's cousin, Lily Middleton Hayward, who had inherited it from her father, who'd carried it through the Civil War and, and its aftermath, she... I have to give credit to her as well. Um, with her manager, Ansel Horlbeck, formerly enslaved resident at Middleton Place, who served as her manager, that was the title she gave him, he held it together. He was managing the dairy. He was managing the maintenance of the buildings as well as keeping the gardens at least presentable because Lily was very particular about about how this important historic landmark appeared to the rest of the world. Well, it might sound strange today, but didn't somebody come to look at the gardens and took photographs and she refused to let yes, them be published? absolutely, because it's interesting to note Magnolia Plantation rests just a few miles downriver from Middleton. And at that time, that particular year, and I think it was, it was in the early 1900s, uh, Middleton's camellias were were coming out later, you know, just uh, uh, you know a week or two later than uh, those in the gardens down below, down river, and she wouldn't have it. She would not have these photographs published without the the full bloom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking about just before World War II, accepting fifteen thousand visitors a year with not much of a staff. That's right. And they were paying maybe a dollar or two apiece at most. And the, I think the staff at the time, you know, they were doubling, you know, doing garden work or um, cooking in the house and taking care of the house and, you know, the things like that. You know, they, they, were, they were real people. You know, this was a day when the historic interpreter, you know, really didn't exist, which is kind of interesting. So – were they letting people tour the house at that time or just the gardens? Just the gardens at that time because they were living uh, half the year in the south flanker, the remaining structure at Middleton Place, and then half the year in town. And it was very much their home. And in fact, in 1941, they entertained Eleanor Roosevelt there at Middleton Place mm -hmm. and uh, Mary Shepherd who worked side by side with Henningham in the kitchen at Middleton Place, uh, served the First Lady some low country classics uh, like Benny Wafers and, and other wonderful, wonderful things. Well, their daughter married Mr. Duell up north. Yes. Uh, which is where we get the duels. So let's, let's carry the family at, to get down to Charles. Yeah. Charles' uh, father met... Charles's mother, Josephine Smith Duell, at 
a debutante part. Well, actually, no. He was managing the um, the Yale Glee Club, and they came down and sang in Charleston. And Josephine was 18 or so, and they fell in love. And uh, the New York Times had an amazing headline about how the publisher Charles Duell marries a 19-year-old Charlestonian, Josephine Scott Smith, and and lived in New York City for the first few years of their marriage on the Upper East Side there. And they had several children. that's right. A daughter, Anne, another daughter, Scotty, and son, Charles. Absolutely. And they they had quite a life. The father founded a publishing company, Duell, Sloan, and Pierce, they published uh, such authors as and poets as Archibald MacLeish, E.E. Mm. E. Cummings, Dr. Spock, who also served as the family's pediatrician, if you wow. can believe it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as Charles says, he grew up in among the sort of creative class of New York City and among a very sophisticated crowd. And she would bring the children back. Yes, for many holidays and and the summers. To her credit, she was determined that the children know their South Carolina heritage. And Charles uh, began coming as an infant down to South Carolina. Eventually, his parents divorced, and her mother moved the children down with her, uh, and they went to school here in Charleston for a few years. He went to Portugal. It was well, then Port right. Military Academy. Yes, Port Military Academy, and he was only, you know, nine or ten years old in his little military uniform. And, and in 1948, uh, he had earned so many demerits that they asked or suggested to the family that maybe they find another school for Charles. <laughs> and that ended up being a major turning point and a positive turning point in his life. So where did they send him? As luck would have it, his uncle, Holland Duell, he owned a ranch in Colorado and happened to be uh, in New York when when Charles and the family were looking for, for what to do with this young boy. And he said, let him come back with me. I have... Four children of my own, wonderful, lovely wife, and let him come stay with us. And he stayed for three years. He went to school in Colorado. This is in his adolescent years. He learned to ride horses. He learned to rope cattle. Uh, and he would take his animals to 4-H club shows and county fairs. And as Charles said, he didn't always win the prize, but he won something much more important, which was confidence in himself for the first time. Okay, and then he does come back east to go to college. Certainly, yes. Um, in fact, he, he goes uh, to boarding school to Andover and on to Yale. And there, I think what's most striking about Charles, and Tracy can certainly speak to this, is he is such a loyal friend. And maintains and nurtures his friendships uh, and the, the, those friendships from high school and college, Yale University, have been a mainstay in his life and have made a huge difference. The book is dedicated to one of his Yale Absolutely. classmates. That's right. Stephen Frederick Snyder, a classmate at Yale, who inspired this book and encouraged the foundation to write this story and made it all possible, Steve Snyder. When did that come about? Because, Tracy, when I did those interviews with Charles, they were about 10 years ago, and that was basically just for for your archives. It wasn't, I don't think you'd envisioned a book at that point. Well, that's a good point, Walter. You know, we knew that, that unfortunately... We're, we're all mortal and that we would not have uh, Charles forever. And so his wife, Sally, really yeah. encouraged uh, hit that oral history project that we worked with you on. And that was 
time flies. It was probably more like 15 years ago, but uh, okay. But I think but, you're right. Yeah, yeah. And we and we didn't know at the time if it would turn into a documentary, a book, or it would be a very important document for the archives. But yeah, that that was really important for you to come and and help us record about 12 hours of his oral history telling this story. And it was instrumental for for Virginia and her work. Absolutely. And it was all done in the summer because I was at Edisto (laughs) and I would drive over every morning for about a week or or two uh, because we didn't record all day. Uh, But we walked the grounds. We walked through the house. I didn't have a script to go from. It was just to get him to talk about that particular place, and that would spur a memory of where something came from, particularly when we got to the candlesticks in the dining room. They had just begun to assemble those from the different family. I probably didn't follow guidelines for doing an an interview, but it wasn't an interview. I was having a conversation with him, which became part of your The basis of of an amazing document that we'll have forever. But Steve... Stepped up, I guess this was about three and a half to four years mm-hmm. ago when Charles announced his retirement or his stepping down, shall we say. Uh, he's never going to retire, but his stepping down from the foundation. And the foundation wanted to honor him, of course, for his amazing contributions and, and his lifetime of work. And, and a campaign was started. You know, Charles, sustainability of Middleton Place Foundation has been his life's work. Uh, and that's part of that is financial sustainability. So a campaign was started to to raise money for the reserve fund and to to help um, the foundation be sustainable. And and that's when Steve Snyder stepped in and said, "I want to be a major part of that, but I, I want to make sure that his story is told." And that's when uh, really rolled up the rolled up the sleeves and began to work on this and identified Virginia. Virginia was really Charles's. Um, hand-picked, uh, uh, first choice, first choice for this book because of her reputation and, and some of her, her previous work that was so well-received and just knowing that she would embrace this and do a, a great job, and she has. All right, let's talk about the creation of Middleton Place Foundation in 19, the 1970s. Right. And, Walter, you can speak to this as well, but that decade— Historic interpretation in America was certainly evolving. And when Charles undertook, first of all, the establishment and creation of a stable yard, he used Colonial Williamsburg as his model and consulted with Carl Hummelson, among others, and then called on some of the great Charleston historic preservationists and interpreters of that time, namely Milby Burton Mm -hmm. at the Charleston Museum. As, as well as Emmett Robinson of the Footlight Players at the Dock Street Theater to set this stage, literally. Yeah, and this is when living history is beginning to evolve, where you have individuals, uh, and at Williamsburg, we refer to those, they actually, we call them actors. They're, yes. I mean, they, they go through, the training they go through, it takes about 18 months before they're ever dealing with the public. Yes. Um, because... It's not the guided tour that you did to begin with, Tracy, and and this is this piece of furniture and this is, you know, whatever, or this is the stable yard where they did that. You've got somebody in place, in situ, telling you what happened in that room or that particular locale and being able to answer questions from the visitors. You've put it so beautifully, Walter. And having Emmett Robinson, who had worked with DuBose Hayward, and he was a graduate of Yale's drama school, when you go to the stable yards, you can see his set designs, his ink, pen and ink drawings, where he envisioned how this would be presented. It was, as Charles said, they learned from Emmett about curtain time, the show must go on. You know, even they did all of this in such a, an amazingly short period of time. And at the same time, Emmett was putting on Porgy and Bess in that same time period for the first time at the city municipal auditorium. Yeah, the first time that Porgy and Bess had been in performed Charleston. in Charleston. That's right. Because it was an integrated play, obviously, although when it was in New York in the 30s, 
within blackface. Uh, but this is with African-American actors and also the fact that the audience was desegregated. Uh, that was part of the tricentennial uh, yes, celebration. Yes. Yeah. And to that aspect, what distinguished the stable yards early on at Middleton Place was the fact that uh, Charles invited a, a few of the descendants of the enslaved to become interpreters there at the stable yard. Particularly, a lot of women come to mind. Um, I believe we have Anna Perry, who mastered the loom that Milby Burton lent to the Middleton Place from the Charleston Museum and other residents at Middleton Place. And visitors would comment, you know, they were giving a fairly conventional uh, interpretation at the time, but but visitors would comment on a certain feeling and note of authenticity to hear from people who had lived at that very site and place for generations. Interpretation of historic properties, particularly those in the American South, began to change in the 80s. Uh, and Tracy, you are now at Middleton Place, right? Right. Middleton Place to my knowledge, and I've always, I, I think this is still true, was the first of the major historic sites in Lowcountry, actually in South Carolina, to deal very forthrightly with the lives of the enslaved population. And with that was with Eliza's house. Right. Eliza's house is a freedman's dwelling um, made for two families. It was, it was built in, the, in, a, in 1870. Originally, it sat right where the Middleton Place restaurant is today, um, moved to the current location a bit later. But it became a center for the study of of African-American history and heritage um, in the early 90s. It kind of celebrated Ned and Chloe, who were the first residents of of that building that we know from the archives um, and what their life uh, would have been like. And as that program started, it really kind of kicked off an intense study period to try to learn more about the enslaved people uh, at Middleton Place. And, and that went on for really about a decade until 2005, the a first real comprehensive study exhibit was opened. And the centerpiece of that was a panel with a listing of over 2,600 names of enslaved people, people who were enslaved by the Middletons. And when visitors would come to the site, and they still do today, they see that panel. It's perhaps one of the most impactful things that they see. And by the way, that's not all at Middleton Place itself, but it's in their many working plantations and over time. Over time, beginning in the early 1700s, even before Henry Middleton founded Middleton Place, the Middletons were slave owners. And we have lists that go back to the 1730s all the way to the Civil War. And people are amazed to you see the names. Sometimes you see an occupation like Blacksmith or Cooper. Sometimes they're in family groupings. Um, the lists were created for a lot of different reasons. Most of them are estate records. So there's a value there. So when you see a value placed beside a human being's name, uh, that can that can be emotional. You know that can really trigger some lasting things to think about. When they leave Middleton Place, they they you know sometimes have things to unpack. Well, and that is part of the evolving interpretation of historic historic properties. And I know that Charles has has really pushed this in trying to incorporate descendants of those who had been enslaved at Middleton Place as a part of the present and ongoing story of Middleton Place. A, a watershed moment, I think, in, in Middleton Place Foundation's history was when Charles met uh, and became friends with uh, a man from Orangeburg named Earl Middleton. Earl was, uh, was someone that Charles had heard about because he was such a successful businessman and had a, quite a thriving real estate company in Orangeburg, and Charles made it a point to to want to meet him. And when they met, uh, they began to talk, and they, and they realized that, that Earl really did descend from an enslaved person at Middleton Place. 
and that began a conversation that ended up leading to Earl becoming a trustee of the foundation. And it opened the door for me and for, for others, for Barbara and other members of our staff to get to know not only Earl, but his family. And he has a very large family in Orangeburg, and they're really um, all over the United States now, and very successful family. And it opened the door to really getting to know the first large family of African-Americans who traced their lineage to Middleton Place. And it opened the door for, for, for reunions that we began having. Yeah. And, Virginia, you chronicle all of that. Yes, and, and Earl Middleton himself, like Charles in many ways, was building on a family legacy. His grandfather was one of the African-American delegates to the 1868 convention and also a, a founder of Claflin University. He was carrying on a legacy of, of, of greatness. Earl's son, Kenneth, succeeded him on the Middleton Place board in the early 2000s and was part of a group, a committee, that decided to hold joint reunions of both African and European descendants of, of Middleton Place. And that culminated, that planning culminated in the first reunion in 2006, where some 300 descendants of Middleton Place gathered together for a weekend, a fall weekend. And uh, I know, Tracy, you were there, uh, and I might let you speak to that. Well, I, I, was, I had the pleasure of being there um, from, a, from a logistics standpoint, sort of <laughs> you know, managing and, and making sure the events were properly organized for everyone. But one of the most uh, incredible moments of my whole career was the dialogue session that we had um, at the end of the of the reunion. And, it, and this is a closed reunion. The public's not invited. So I'm one of the few non-family members there. So I felt quite a privilege to, to be there. Um, but when this, this group of people in 2006 have, have gathered together for a weekend and they didn't know each other for the most part, and they've slowly gotten to know each other through this, through a weekend of activities, learning about their own heritage. Then came together on a on a Sunday morning and had a dialogue to talk about what's next and or what this meant, all these things. And as you can imagine, a little bit tentative there. How do we open the door? How do we get this conversation started? And and after kind of a Charles would say a pregnant pause. With no one speaking, um, what happened was a lady stood, uh, and she was a European-American descendant, older lady, and she stood and she grabbed the microphone and said, my descendants own some of your descendants, and I'm sorry for that. And she, her voice cracked, and she, she, she wanted to say more. You know she did, but she just couldn't get it out. And then everyone's looking around what's going to happen next. And this gentleman, African-American gentleman, who is, I think, part of Earl's family, actually, from, who came down from New York, who had been really quiet during the whole two-day reunion, he took the microphone and he stood up and he said, I don't know why I came here. My wife made me come, but I'm glad I did because I'm glad I'm, I'm beginning to, to deal with this. And, and he gave her a big bear hug, and it just, it just opened the door for more conversation, for more sharing. Um, um, and since that dialogue just sort of pierced the balloon of their relationship and took some of that stress out, that ever since then, uh, their gatherings have been um, so much more um, comfortable, you might say, family-like, you know, so that they really have gotten to know each other, and it's amazing to see it. It really is. Well, you, you might at this point, talk about the fact that the European-American descendants don't all live in Charleston. They are scattered to the four. They're in Italy. They're in England. They're in New York. They're in Rhode Island. They're on the West Coast. And one of the things that Charles really tried to do was to track down objects, paintings, books, silver that had once been at Middleton Place to get them back. And that meant contacting sometimes cousins he didn't really know You've got those two candlesticks, and we would really like to have them back. And that's part of the, what the Middleton Place Foundation has done because those were given to the foundation 
are lent to the foundation, not to Charles personally. Right, and uh, and uh, the reunion reunions have been instrumental for things like that because when a family member comes from a faraway state or even another country and they see something in the house museum that that actually looks familiar, they may have the other pair of candlesticks. Uh, that's how that's how it happens um, many times, and that's actually how that story of the eight candlesticks that are on the dining room table um, at Middleton Place, how it happened, um, Arthur and Mary um, purchased those on a grand tour uh, in, in 1770 when they were in, in England and brought, they were brought back. And when Arthur died, his estate was inventory down to the detail, and those eight candlesticks were vividly described. But when the museum first opened, they were, they were, not, they were lost. They were, they were not part of the museum collection. Where were they? You know, and they, and they were, had been passed in different families' hands, uh, and they all had survived. And beginning with uh, beginning in the '90s, when the first pair came back, and then as reunions happened, uh, they began to come back two by two until finally in 2011, with the last reunion, the last pair uh, came back, and they were all reunited together. So it's a it's a miracle that those eight candlesticks survived in different family family hands, never sold, uh, never in an accidental fire or any of the things that could have happened to those candlesticks, but now they're all back. And that's just one story of sets of chairs, uh, other sets of, uh, of things that, that get separated and, and being, being brought back. And it, those things tell us about the Middletons, uh, about their life, their tastes and, and, and whatnot, but it also tells us about all the people, the enslaved people, that literally were, were, were lighting the candles that were in those candlesticks and they were polishing the silver. Um, and many times, many of the, much of the silver at Middleton Place um, that we talk about today, we, we start to shy away from the maker and the style and talk more about the use and whose hands were on them. All right. We need to pause again to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking to Virginia Beach about her book, American Landmark, Charles Duell and the Rebirth of Middleton Place. And also with me is Tracy Todd, who is the president and CEO of the Middleton Place Foundation. Virginia, in putting together a book like this, I mean, I, I always ask authors, um, favorite incident, the rescue of the Middleton Place after Hugo, Ashley Sack, Anything that, that I say you smiling, <laughs> I have, you know. First off, I'll say one of the great joys of this project for me was working so closely with Sally and Charles Duell uh, for these last few years. And I would also include Tracy Todd and his staff and just developing the, the friendships, um, but all centered around a place. I'll say one of the most memorable times I spent was, well, there were so many, but on Juneteenth, June 19th, Mm -hmm. uh, 2019, you know, just a half year before the pandemic arrived, uh, I was at Middleton Place, and they had scheduled a whole program of events centered around the African-American story at Middleton Place. And a family arrived, multi-generational family that day, among many who came. And they were carrying a large black and white photograph of an African-American woman. And we learned that they were descendants of Martha DeWeese, who had lived and worked at Middleton Place most of her life. So I just happened to be at the at the visitor's kiosk, and they quickly alerted Mary Edna Sullivan, a curator at, at the House Museum, who was keeping, she and others have a running database of anyone associated with the people of Middleton Place. So the I happened to be walking over there and, and accompanied them as we walked the grounds to go meet Marietta. She was anxious to hear their story and their connection to the place. And it turned out there were four generations of Martha DeWeese's family in this group of about six. And they were put into the registry at Middleton Place. And Marietta shared with them some of the knowledge she had about about 
their ancestors, but most importantly, they shared a lot of uh, important information about Martha DeWeese, and that has gone into into the archives. Following their meeting with Mary Edna, we went over to the Plantation Chapel, which has some recordings of African Americans, uh, mostly associated with Middleton Place, some not, singing traditional spirituals. And it turned out that these descendants who were visiting that day for Juneteenth heard their ancestor, Martha DeWeese's voice, and her husband, Solomon DeWeese, singing uh, Going On Up, one of uh, Martha DeWeese's favorite, favorite spirituals. And it was an amazing moment. They had not heard their voices for, you know, would have been about 25 years since they'd heard heard those voices. And of course, some of them may never have heard her voice. Good point. That's right. The younger ones the had never ones. heard the voice because there was a little one in a ta- in a stroller. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's an incredible yeah. story. Great story, and and they uh, hopefully are coming to the to the next joint reunion this fall. Well, Tracy Todd and Virginia Beach, I want to thank you both for being with us today on the Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've been associated with Charles Duell and Tracy Todd and Middleton Place for about 25 years now. But the whole story of how it evolved over time, and particularly the vision that Charles Duell had to create the foundation that makes Middleton Place a permanent historic landmark open to the public in perpetuity, is in itself quite a story. It's very much a South Carolina story and all a part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.